Thank you, Belinda. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians is one of the letters that Paul wrote, obviously, to the church in Corinth. We as a church have been going through this book now for quite a while, and uh, we come towards the end. There's 16 chapters in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, this is our second week uh, in chapter 15, and so just a really interesting passage of Scripture, uh, a very interesting chapter, actually. It kind of transitions a bit. Uh, Paul is dealing with a lot of junk for the first 14 chapters in this church in Corinth, a lot of things that they're doing wrong, that they're not seeing rightly, and uh, Paul makes uh, enormous corrections to their thinking and to their actions in the first 14 chapters, basically. And then chapter 15 is like a breath of fresh air. He brings them right back to what matters most. And so chapter 15 is where we're going to be, and uh, we'll jump in about midstream here in just a bit. Well, anytime you hear a sermon, anytime you have a quiet time, anytime you go to a Bible study, whether it's a Sunday school class or a small group or whatever it may be, there are two questions that I think we really need to ask ourselves. In fact, I think it's helpful for you to do this after every time that I preach, for example. Uh, two questions that you need to ask. The first question is, so what? So what? Now, I, don't, I hope you don't ask it like with an attitude like, hey, so what? You know, I hope you don't do it that way after I preach. But I think it's a great question to ask. So what? In other words, what difference does what I have just read really make? What difference does what I've just heard really make? Everything you've just said, Brooks, for 30 minutes, so what? What is the big difference? In other words, what is the importance of this for me specifically? What is the importance of this for everybody else? So what? It's a great question to ask after every message, after every Bible study, after every quiet time. Uh, the second question, I think, that is equally as important is not just so what, but now what? In other words, when I was looking at the importance of what I've just heard or what I've just read, now what do I need to do about this? What is my responsibility? What do I need to do to apply what I've just read? What do I need to do to, do to apply this message to my life specifically? So what? And now what? And you know what? Without realizing it, you've been doing this for years. You really have. When you were a kid, say you're seven years old, and your mom said, go clean your room. You said in your mind, you didn't say it out loud or else you're still in timeout. You, you said in your mind, so what? Right? My mom tells me to go clean my room. So what? And you begin to evaluate what is the importance of that command. So what? And you begin to think things like this. You know what? I thrive in a messy room. I don't really need to clean my room. You know, this is my room anyway. And uh, who is she to tell me what to do with my room? So you ask the so what question. And the now what is answered by... I'm going to do nothing. I'm not going to clean my room. You did that once, more than likely. It was about the only time you did that. And after that, it, you know, so what was answered a little bit differently. It was of great importance to you. As a grown-up, right, when you're driving through an intersection, say you're on the south side, and you see one of those signs that says, this intersection is photo-enforced, meaning we're taking your picture when you run this red light. Uh, you look at that and you see that sign and you ask the so what question, so what? And you evaluate that to be of great importance because you don't want a $150 ticket in the mail, right? You don't even have the pleasure of being hand, handed to you. You get in the mail like on a week when you don't get paid or something and uh, when your sales are down. And, uh, and so you look at that sign, this intersection is photo enforced, so what? Uh, it's of great importance, now what? You slam on the brakes and you probably cause an accident behind you. We, we've been doing this for years. Well, here, here's, here's one of the problems, I think, with a vast majority of churches in this country in which we live. Churches that are good to the core, churches that preach out of the same Bible that you read on a daily basis. 
And yet it filled with Christians that when they asked the question, so what, about their faith, when they asked the question, so what, about the truth of God's word, they, they see it as of little importance. Grateful that they have a relationship with God. Grateful for their own fire insurance, right? I'm not going to hell, I'm going to heaven. Grateful for what God may do in their life. But when it really begins to get difficult, whenever God's word begins to speak to areas of our lives where we don't want him speaking to, whenever it begins to involve any sacrifice or any laying down of our comforts, we ask the so what question and we determine, really not that important, I'm going to heaven anyway, and the result is that our lives are vastly unchanged. Whenever we get to chapter 15 in the book of 1 Corinthians, what Paul has done, as I mentioned earlier, is that he has dealt with a lot of difficulties in the church in Corinth. And we, I won't rehash all those. We've been preaching through these now for months. There were a lot of issues in this church, a lot of things that did not reflect Christ. Paul, virtually for 14 chapters, has been dealing with these issues. He's been setting them straight. He's been realigning their understanding of what God desires in their lives. He's been he, he, wholesale changes in this church in Corinth. He's been presenting to them. And when he gets to chapter 15, what he's doing is he's looking at two of the most important events in all of history. One is an event that has already occurred. The other is an event that is yet to occur. And what Paul does is, as he looks at these two most important events, one being the resurrection of Jesus in the past, the other, the resurrection of all those who know him at a time yet to come in the future, Paul looks at those two events and he asks the question, so what? He begins to detail with the tru- to, to deal with the details of the truth of the resurrection, both of Jesus and of his followers, and he asks, so what? And when Paul asks the question, looking at the resurrection, when he says, in so many words, so what? It is of such great importance to him that it is very clearly understood that it has changed the whole scope of Paul's life. And that for every follower of Jesus Christ, when they look at the resurrection of Jesus and they ask the question, so what? What's the big deal? What's the importance to me? The answer should be, it is of the greatest importance. And the way we answer the now what question should be obvious to everyone who knows us that our lives are different because of the resurrection of Jesus and because of his work in our lives if we have already placed our faith in him. And so, as we look in chapter 15, here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump in somewhat midstream. We're going to begin in verse 12 in just a moment. But I want to give you just a a little bit of a takeaway, just a little bit of a summary statement. And I hope you'll jot this down. It's It's so important because it's going to play into what we're looking at. And the statement is this. You've got it on the overhead. That the incarnation, the coming of Jesus, the first Christmas, the incarnation is all the evidence that we need that God loves us. The incarnation is proof of God's amazing, tremendous love for you specifically but it's also his resurrection the resurrection of jesus christ specifically it's his resurrection that is all the proof that we need of his amazing great power in the lives of those who know him you see you can never come to a place where you where you can rightly say you know i don't know if god really loves me we, we have a tendency to do that. We don't voice it, but we feel that way sometimes. You know what? I, I haven't done my quiet time for a week, and I haven't been kind of busy. And, you know, gosh, I just don't know if God loves me as much as he did back when I was doing my quiet time so regularly. Yes, he does love you. Yes, we need to be doing our quiet times because of our love for him so that we can know his heart better. But his love for us is not dependent on whether or not we spent time in his word that day. You know, I, just, things aren't going so good, and, like the kids aren't behaving, and you know, I'm fighting with my spouse, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, I'm, you know, just at odds with my boss, things aren't going. I wonder, I wonder if God just doesn't love me anymore. 
you know, my hair's not doing right, and I don't have enough money in my pocket, you know, the movie I wanted to go to is sold out, I just don't know if God loves me anymore. You know what, we should never, <laughs> we should never have any adequate reason to wonder those kinds of things, right? Because the incarnation, the coming of Jesus, the fact that he left heaven in the first place to come, to be born of Mary, to be born of a virgin, to, 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 to come into this world that he didn't have to, the fact that he even did all that in the first place is all the evidence we need that he loves us. So, so we can take that one off the table. Yes, God loves you. Yes, he loves you. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, insert name here, right? That applies to you. God does love you. But it's the resurrection of Jesus as well. The fact that he died, was buried, and that he rose again, that the gospels clearly attest, the New Testament clearly attests, the Old Testament clearly uh, foretells, that it's the resurrection of Jesus that proves that God can do anything he desires in your life as you yield yourself and yield your circumstances to him. And where he acts in a way that we did not expect or that, it, that we had hoped he would do differently, we trust in his grace, we trust in his power, we trust in his sovereignty, that he's in control, that he does all things well. But it's his incarnation that ultimately proves to us that he loves us, that he came for us. And it's the resurrection of Jesus that proves that he has all the power that we need demonstrated in our lives on a daily basis. And so understanding that, let's then now jump in to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to begin in verse 12. Here's what Paul's doing. He's dealing with the topic of the resurrection. Again, the resurrection of Christ, the coming resurrection of those who know him. And as he deals with the resurrection, Paul is asking the big question, so what? What's the big deal about the resurrection? Well, let's see what he has to say. Let's begin in verse 12. Paul says in verse 12, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? See, what we can determine from that verse is that there were apparently people in the church in the city of Corinth who had this mistaken, uh, erroneous, heretical belief that resurrection was a fallacy. They just didn't believe in it. It wasn't the first time Jesus dealt with them. They were a group of religious leaders in the Gospels called Sadducees that discounted, that completely denied the resurrection. Well, there were some folks who denied the resurrection here, apparently, in the church in Corinth. And so Paul is dealing with this. He says, so if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how is it that there are some among you who say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So Paul's dealing with this issue, those who deny the resurrection. Verse 13, he says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, you know, just for the sake of argument, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You see, if, if you take resurrection on the table, he's saying, then, then Jesus could not have been raised from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, then he says, our preaching is in vain. Paul spent 18 months in this church in Corinth. He says that if you take resurrection off the table, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And if that didn't happen, then all of our preaching is in vain. Oh, and by the way, your faith, that's also in vain. So if we, if we take away the resurrection, I know the vast majority of you, I don't, I don't assume that all of you do. Some of you, you're searching and, and you're here for a reason. God's brought you here. You're wondering, well, you know, what does this Bible have to say about my life? Who, who is God? Who is Jesus? I understand that some of you, and, and, and gladly so, we pray for, for, for you to come. You're here and you've got a lot of questions, but the vast majority of you, I mean, you believe in the resurrection. I mean, you, you understand that. But do we live in light of that? I mean, do our lives bear the reflection of a life that truly holds to the truth, the life-changing truth of what it meant for Jesus to be risen from the dead? Paul says that if this hasn't happened, Christianity is a sham, he says. You take off the resurrection, Christianity is a sham. 
no different than any other man-made religion on the face of this earth. And, and the preaching, everything that I've preached, everything that I've taught, he says, it's all in vain. It's worthless. And your faith that you hold to, that you cling to, that you, you, you hold so precious, so it's just a waste of time, he says, if you take resurrection off the table. Look, look at verse 15. He says, moreover, we're even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified, uh, if, you hold, if you don't hold to the resurrection, then we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he didn't raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, he says. It is worth nothing. You take resurrection off the table, your faith is worthless. He says, Elwin, by the way, you are still in your sins. In other words, when you consider how do you get to God, how do you have a relationship with God, your primary issue is sin, right? That's our issue, it's sin. That's why we talk about yielding our lives to Jesus, praying for him to forgive us of our sins. That's why we talk so much about the cross and how the cross is where Jesus died to pay for our sins. If we take resurrection off the table and we take Jesus' resurrection off the table, if we minimalize that, then ultimately what happens is we minimalize what it means to be forgiven in the sight of a God who's holy, who has every right to just squash us and remove us from the face of this earth. Paul says, if you... If you deny the resurrection you are up a creek without a paddle you are still in your sins and you have no way to pay for them you have no there is no quick exit there is no way of escape you are lost forever in your sins he says if you take away ultimately the resurrection verse 18 he says then those also by the way who have fallen asleep in christ in other words that's a reference to those who have who had a relationship with jesus but who had died, Paul says, if you deny the resurrection, then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They are not in heaven, he says, the way you think they were. They have perished if you deny the resurrection. He makes a shocking statement, verse 19. He says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only. That sounds good, doesn't it? You know, my hope is built on nothing less, right? And we sing songs about that. Paul says, listen, if your hope is only rooted in Christ in this life, if that's, all you, if, if that's all the focus you have on Christ is in this life, he says, we're of all men most to be pitied. <laughs> yeah, those are strong statements. L listen to what C.S. Lewis says. Some of you have read C.S. Lewis. Some of you really appreciate his insight and uh, some of the way that, uh, some of his take on, on some of the deeper doctrines of the faith. Listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, Christianity, if it's false, is of no importance. It's exactly what Paul's saying here. If you take away the resurrection, you take away the resurrection of Christ, Christianity crumbles. If Christianity is false, C.S. Lewis says, it is of no importance. But if it's true, it is of infinite importance. All right? So if everything the Bible says about the Christian faith, if it's false, it is completely null and void. It is of no importance whatsoever. This is a big old waste of time. Let's just go out, hit the river, hit the golf course. Let's go out and have a nice lunch. Let's just go do something else, right? Paul will pretty much say that later in this passage. He says, if Christianity is of, if it's false, it is of no importance. If it's true, it is of infinite importance. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says, the only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. It is impossible for the Christian faith to be considered moderately important. However, that's what many of us do with our faith, isn't it? We consider our faith something that is acted out only on a Sunday morning. We consider that our faith is acted out only under the confines of our roof at home. We consider that our faith is only acted out as we are with our close circle of friends who also share that common faith. 
However, because it is only moderately important, we do not live out our faith in a place where it really matters. We do not live out our faith whenever it may hurt us in the workplace, where we may lose a sale, where we may ultimately offend someone who doesn't want to follow a Savior named Jesus. We don't live out our faith on a Friday night whenever temptation rises and everything is pressing in. We ultimately cave in and we ultimately give in and we don't let our light shine and we don't live out our faith and we don't live in purity. We don't live following hard after Jesus. Why? Because it's only moderately important. But then Sunday rolls around and it's time to go back to church and now it's infinitely important again. It does not operate that way. C.S. Lewis was exactly right. It is an impossibility for our faith to be considered moderately important. Either it is nothing or it is everything. And what Jesus experienced on the cross, what he experienced ultimately displaying the power of God through his resurrection, it takes moderately important completely out of the picture. And yet for the vast majority of believers, their relationship with God is exactly that. You know, I fit him in when it benefits me. I turn to him whenever everything else has fallen apart. But the rest of the time, God, I will call you if I need you. And we wonder why the world goes unreached. We wonder why people in our workplace don't have a concept of who God is. We wonder why our neighborhoods and our communities and our cul-de-sacs and our apartment places and our campuses are virtually unexposed to God. Because we don't take Him there. Because it's just moderately important. Verse 20. Like a breath of fresh air, Paul says to these believers, he's just laid out, you know, if, if you don't want to believe the resurrection, here's some things you're going to have to jettison. You're going to have to throw overboard. If you don't want to believe in the resurrection, then you've got to throw away your Christian faith. You've got to throw away my preaching. You've got to throw away uh, uh, the re- resurrection of Jesus. You've got to throw all that away, he says. And if you're not going to believe in all that, then there are implications. Verse 20, but now, he says, transition, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. He proclaims this boldly. But now Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who are asleep listen to me he says christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits that's an interesting phrase there the first fruits it goes all the way back to old testament theology all the way back to the old testament here's what the jews did in the old testament the early followers of God, they would plant their field and they would draw a harvest, right? They would collect their harvest. Well, whenever they would collect their harvest, the first portion of that harvest they would offer to God as a sacrifice. It was was called the first fruits. That's the actual terminology used in the Old Testament. Here's what Paul's doing. It's, It's interesting. He's going all the way back to the Old Testament and he's saying, just as the Old Testament followers of God would take the best and the first from their harvest, and offer it to God. He says in the same way Jesus also is, is as the first fruits of those who have already passed away. Jesus rising from the dead is the first fruits. He has set the stage now for the resurrection of all followers of Jesus Christ. See, Paul is not just talking here about the resurrection of Jesus. He's also talking about the resurrection of the followers of Jesus at a time yet to come. Verse 21, uh, let's see how he does this. He goes into kind of a lengthy passage of Scripture. He doesn't give us a perfect timeline here. It doesn't mean this is imperfect. It's just that Paul doesn't touch every, every dot along the timeline of what's coming you know, in the future. But he, he, he hits a lot of the high points. He says, verse 21, For since by man, that's Adam, came death, by a man also, that's Jesus, came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die because of sin, 
so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now when he says all, it doesn't mean we're all going to heaven. It's understood here. Paul makes it very clear elsewhere in this letter and throughout the New Testament. It's very clear that only those who go to heaven are those who've become followers of Jesus through repentance and faith. Verse 23, he says, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, who has risen from the dead. After that, those who were Christ at his coming. See, there will be a time Matthew speaks largely of this. Revelation speaks largely of this. There is a time when the rapture will occur. And when the rapture occurs, those who have a relationship with Christ or who had a relationship with Christ but have already died will be raised to meet Jesus in the air. 1 Thessalonians speaks largely of that as well. So the rapture will come. Verse 24, he says, Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Death is an enemy. Yes, we use the terminology at times at at funerals for believers that death is a gateway to the presence of God. Death is an entrance to the presence of God. Yes, that's exactly right, but death is still an enemy. It is still an enemy. Jesus has defeated the enemy of death. And what Paul is doing here is he's beginning to lay out somewhat of a timeline that Christ has been resurrected. Whenever a believer uh, breathes their last, their eyes close in death because of their faith in Jesus, that believer, ultimately their spirit goes to be with God in heaven. The Bible, Paul himself says, uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. So for those of you that have lost loved ones, and those loved ones had a relationship with Jesus, they had turned from their sin, invited Christ to take over their lives, those believers, when they died, their spirit went straight to be with God in heaven. What great news that is. At a time yet to come, Jesus will come again. The rapture will take place. The dead in Christ, their bodies will be raised. We'll be looking at this more next week. At the end of chapter 15, Paul will talk about that physical resurrection of the believers in Christ. At the rapture, those dead believers will be raised. Those who are still alive will be caught up with him in the air. There will be a time of tribulation. Many hold to, their scholars believe differently. My, my conviction is that that will usher in a time of tribulation of seven years after which Christ will return physically to this earth. He will reign for a thousand years. It's called the millennial reign of Christ. And ultimately, as a, at the close of that time, uh, we will see not only Satan running loose and rampant, but ultimately Satan in his demise as well. And the end will come. There is, however, another important event to come in the midst of that timeline. And that will be the judgment of those who do not know Jesus, who died without a relationship, with Jesus Christ. Notice what it says here, Revelation chapter 20. John writes here, he says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead, these are those who died without a relationship with Christ. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, then he was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, this picture is a picture of things yet to come for those who do not have a relationship with Christ. it's, It's this scene in Revelation 20 that causes the revelation uh, or, or the resurrection to raise the stakes for everyone. Because there is a time coming for those who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, 
that when their eyes close in death on this side of eternity, all bets are off. There is no more second chance. There is not a way to talk ourselves for them to talk their way into heaven. There is no excuse that will be suitable. It mentions their deeds. It doesn't mean we get to heaven because of our good deeds. It means that our sinful deeds are all the evidence that's needed to justify God's judgment upon those who don't have a Savior. And the day will come when those without, without Christ, those without a Savior, will be raised and they will stand before God as their judge. And because of the sin on their life that was never paid for by the Savior Jesus, ultimately their punishment, their, their sentence, will be eternal judgment in a place called hell. You know, when you look at the sobering reality of what is yet to come, the beauty of the resurrection of those who know Jesus, to spend eternity in the presence of God, and yet the horror of those who do not know Jesus, raised to stand before God as judge with the penalty of their sin eternally over their lives, those stakes become very, very high. You know, I used to hear people say that all roads lead to God. Now, you may have heard that statement. Now, I used to completely, quickly deny that. No, 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 all roads don't lead to God. You know, there's not a Hindu way and a Muslim way. There's not a Buddhist way. You know, there's only Jesus. That's the only way to, you know, to get to God. He's the only way to God, and that's completely true. That's the gospel. But you know what? If, if we want to be very, very literal and very, very accurate, all roads do lead to God based on Revelation chapter 20. All roads lead to God, but not every road ends there. And not every road leads to heaven. Every person will stand before God one day, from the greatest that history has ever produced to the least. Every single person will stand before God one day. For those who have a relationship with Jesus, they'll stand before Jesus, and it's called the, the, the judgment seat. It, 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 it's called the, the, the place where we'll be given rewards. Uh, we will stand before Jesus as our Savior, as our Lord, and it'll be the most magnificent uh, experience that we've ever had and ushered into the glories and the beauty of heaven for all of eternity. But those who don't have a Savior, those who don't know Jesus, will stand before God also. Their road will lead to God, but it will be this scene, Revelation chapter 20. A scene of horror, a scene of absolute, total justice. When all the while there was a Savior who had paid for their sin, that stood ready and willing, and I believe at some point had even sought to draw them to himself. And yet they denied. Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And I believe as the Corinthians read this letter at this point, this is just me thinking. I believe there was a great seriousness at this stage as they began to read this letter, understanding the implications of the resurrection, understanding what it meant to them, understanding how they had operated as a church, understanding what it meant to their lives. Because you see, whenever we come to, for, for an unbeliever to come to this day in Revelation 20, nothing else will matter. It's, your 401k is not going to matter. Where you're going on vacation next month is not going to matter. How the kids are doing in school is not going to matter. Where you're going to get the car repaired is not going to matter. Whether or not Georgia's going to have a good season in football this year is not going to matter. Whether or not the Braves make the World Series is not going to matter. Nothing is going to matter. Whether or not you got dumped for a date last weekend is not going to matter. How popular you are, what you've accomplished, all those degrees on the wall, all those accomplishments in your drawer, all the things, all the recognitions, all the money that you've amassed, None of those things are going to matter if you stand before God and he is your judge. None of it will matter. Paul goes on as he writes 
in this letter. He continues, verse 27. He says, For he, the Father, has put all things in subjection under his, the Son, Jesus' feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. In other words, you know, God the Father is not under the authority of God the Son. He says, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. Are you thoroughly confused now? Here's the phrase to keep in mind. You can dig into this when you have more time. So that God may be all in all. There is one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the day will come when it will be evident to everyone who's ever breathed the breath of air that he is exactly who Scripture says he is. Paul in verse 29 then deals, and we won't camp here, uh, but Paul deals with a, apparently this is a very difficult verse, but apparently a bit of misunderstanding in the church of Corinth. He says, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? He's just making an argument supporting the resurrection. But th this in no way supports any type of teaching that we can be baptized for those who've already passed away. The Mormon church does this. That's why, by the way, the Mormon church is the, the, really the, the, the greatest resource for genealogical records. <laughs> you may have recognized that. The reason is because the Mormon church believes you can be baptized uh, by proxy for those who passed away. And their whole doctrine is twisted and contorted. They're nowhere near a Christian religion at all, uh, though they claim to be. But um, this verse does not teach you can be baptized for the dead. It doesn't teach that at all. Um, God doesn't have grandkids. <laughs> God has children. And you only become a child of God when you come through the Son, Jesus in repentance and faith so we don't get to heaven because grandmama was a good believer we don't get to heaven because my daddy was a good solid christian we only come to jesus or we only get to heaven we don't have no god when we come to him in our own faith verse 30 paul goes on he says why why are we also in danger every hour again he's asking so what so if the resurrection is not true paul says can somebody help me understand why i have been in so much danger throughout my whole entire ministry he says i affirm brethren by the boasting in you which i have in christ jesus our lord that i die daily i die every single day paul says Verse 32, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Theologians differ on their understanding of this verse. Paul doesn't go into detail. Some believe that he literally faced like a Daniel type of experience where he possibly was in the midst of great persecution, literally faced wild beasts you know, that, that, that he was in the presence of in Ephesus. Others say he was speaking figuratively, that it was because of the, the, the uh, conflict that he faced with people in Ephesus. Regardless, Paul's life was a life of sacrifice. He says that the dead are not raised. Hey, let us eat, let us drink, for tomorrow we die. <laughs> you know, if the resurrection is not true, if it's a, then all of this is a sham. Let's just go eat it up, drink it up. Tomorrow we're going to die. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals, Paul says. So he's just laid out the argument. At the end of chapter 15, he's going to talk about what it looks like for the resurrection. But here in this section, he's laid out the argument of the resurrection of Jesus. And he's asked the most important question, so what? What does this mean? What are the implications of this? How is this important to me? And then he basically answers the question very, very clearly. He says, this is of infinite importance. Your whole faith rests on this. The resurrection of your Savior rests on this. Your uh, walk with God rests on this. Your eternal security rests on this. Everything in your life rests on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says. Which I think then leads us to understand that there is absolutely no facet of our lives 
that are untouched, that are unaffected by the resurrection. There is no facet. Your marriage is affected by the truth of the resurrection. The way you spend your money is affected by the truth of the resurrection. Your, your relationships with those around you, friendships, work relationships, regardless, those are all affected, should be at least, by the resurrection because it's the resurrection that defines who you are. It's not your past that defines who you are. It's not your difficult circumstances that defines who you are. It is your faith in a Savior who has risen from the dead, who says, listen, I'm coming back for you, and you're going to spend eternity with me. And it's that truth, it is that bedrock foundational teaching of Scripture, Old and New Testament, that defines who we are. Paul says every aspect of your life is touched by the resurrection. Look at what he says in verse 34. He says, so become sober-minded as you walk. In other words, your thinking should be impacted by the resurrection. Oh, and he says, and stop sinning. <laughs> your, your, the way you live out your life should be impacted by the resurrection. Every, every facet of your life. He says, for some have no knowledge of God. And as he said often in this letter, he says, I speak this to your shame. You know, I was talking to somebody about a month ago in our church, and I wish I could remember who it was. Uh, if it was you, then remind me after the service is done. But they made a comment that I love. They said, you know what? A lot of people say that Jesus, they, they don't want to follow Jesus because they don't, need, they don't need a crutch. And I've heard that so many times. But the person said, you know what? For me, Jesus is not my crutch. He's my stretcher. <laughs> you know, I, man, that just resonated with me. And we think about it, a, a crutch is something you use when you can make it on your own, but you just need a little assistance. You know, you, you played in a pickup basketball game. You're about 20 years past your prime. You just haven't admitted it yet, right? And you twist your ankle. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, the next day you're going to work. And, hey, man, what's up with the crutch? Well, I just need a little help. <laughs> you know, I can still make it. I just need a little help. Jesus didn't come and he didn't die. He didn't leave heaven. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't leave everything he had to demonstrate his love for us coming in the first place. And he didn't go through everything he did at the cross. And he didn't expend his life for 33 years of ministry on this earth, living in sinless perfection, just to help us when we need a little help. He's not a crutch. He never came for that. And for those who tell you, oh, I don't need a crutch, you should agree wholeheartedly, that's exactly right, I don't either. What we need is a stretcher. Because without him, we are lost and undone in our sins. And we will stand before God in a scene like Revelation 20 has already thankfully painted for us, where we will have no hope. For all of eternity no hope we don't need a crutch we need a stretcher so how do you get on the stretcher how do you know jesus you know matthew in chapter 16 has really helped us to see look at what it says here jesus said to his disciples if anyone wishes to come after me hey you need a stretcher anybody wants to be my disciple anybody wants to follow me anybody wants to know god through me here's what you do you must deny yourself he says take up his cross and follow me you know, three things there, Jesus says, deny himself. You know what? It's ourselves that keeps us from following Jesus. Luke chapter 16, I believe it is, when uh, Jesus shares the parable of the, uh, the rich man of Lazarus, and there's a great gulf between the two. You know, the rich man, he said, uh, he said to Abraham, he, he said, uh, you know, if you'll, if you'll just um, go and tell my brothers, you know, that... that that all of this is reality, they'll surely, they'll surely know God. And the entry and the statement was made. He said, even if someone were to rise from the dead, <laughs> they would not trust. 
In other words, the reason most people don't follow God is not because of a lack of information, at least in our country. It's because they don't want a master. That's why. Your friends and your coworkers, your family members who they, they respect your faith, but they, they don't want any part of Jesus, they don't want a master. They, they, they don't want to deny themselves. They don't want to give up themselves. They don't want to give up their stuff. They don't want to give up their life. They want to give up their control. They don't want to give up themselves. Sad thing is Jesus says that that's what has to come. If anyone's going to come after him, then we have to deny ourselves. He says, and then take up our cross. A cross in the first century when Jesus spoke this, it, it was not a, it was not a, uh, you know, something we put on our, on our outfit to make us look a little better. You know, it wasn't a, uh, what was the word, ladies? Not an accompaniment. What, what do you call them? Yeah, accessory. Yeah, it's... I, I can never remember that word. <laughs> There's my accessory. That's my watch. Um, that's not what the cross is. If you would have wore a cross in the first century, it would have been horrendous for those who saw you. You know why? Because the cross was an execution. The means of execution in the first century. That's what it was. When Jesus says, take up your cross, he's, he's saying you need to deny yourself. And even beyond that, you need to die to yourself. You force yourself into the back seat and let him take control. You take up your means of execution. You die to yourself every single day. You are not your own savior. You are yielding and relinquishing that right to Jesus. He says you deny yourself, take up your cross, and then you're ready to follow me. You want to know what it takes to get to heaven? This is it. You want to take what it, know what it takes to know God? This is what it is. Verse 25, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever ultimately loses his life for my sake We'll find it. And so Paul lays out the beauty of the resurrection. He asks the question, so what? Here's all the truth of the resurrection. So what? And it's a question I ask you today. Knowing what you know today about the resurrection of Jesus, knowing what you know today about the coming resurrection for all people in history, so what? See, you have to answer that question yourself. And the way you answer that question We'll have, direct on we'll have direct implications on the way you answer the next. Now what? Because if the resurrection and if the Christian faith and if God's word and if Jesus are all who the Bible claims, then you cannot consider it only moderately important. It has to be your life. God, I, I thank you that your word is so incredibly clear. God, I thank you that you are a God of grace, and that you are a God of forgiveness, and that you're a God of tremendous love, but that, God, you're also a God of truth. And, Lord, I thank you that you've given us your word to explain to us the truth that we need to know. And Lord, according to what we've read this morning, a foundational part of that truth is the resurrection of Jesus, that he came and that he died and that he did so willingly as a sacrifice for our sins. Lord, not so that we, he could become a crutch in our lives, but so that he could ultimately carry us, for we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are without hope in this world, without a Savior. And Lord, it's only Jesus who can fill that role in our lives. 
And so, Lord, we thank you that your word explains that to us. And as we stand now on the other side of this message and we look at the truth of what your word says, we have to answer those two questions. So what difference does this make to me? And now what am I going to do about it? And God, I hope the way that we translate it will be that we will live lives in our thinking, in our motivations, in our actions, Lord, that make it very evident to those around us that we don't control ourselves, that we are yours. Lord, that we're not the master of our own lives, that you are our master, that you are our Lord, that you are our Savior. And Lord, we know that we don't have to go out speaking King James English to convince people of this. You've called us, you've created us uniquely to be who we are, and yet we are called to be who we are, fully yielded to you. And so God, may our lives be yet another evidence in this world of what it looks like when a life is transformed by the reality of a relationship with Jesus and by the reality of the resurrection. Lord, I know that there are some here this morning where they're good people, and they've made a really good choice to go to church today, and yet they know in their heart that they've never made a decision like what we've looked at, that Jesus is just another accessory, just another add-on to their lives. But Lord, really, in their heart of hearts, they know that he is not their, their Lord, that they run their own lives. They've never yielded and relinquished their lives to him. And God, I pray today, whether it's something I've said, whether it's your word, regardless of what it may be, that your spirit will just drive home the the urgency that they cannot let another moment pass without calling on Christ, laying down their sins, and calling on Jesus to forgive and to take over. And so, Lord, whatever decisions we need to make today, I pray that we'd make them, that we'd get them right. Lord, that we'd follow where you lead us. And Lord, as we do, Lord, we thank you in advance that our life, though at times may be difficult, that you're going to be there for us, that you're never going to forsake us, that you're going to turn all things that are bad into good. And Lord, that you're going to ultimately use our lives to make a difference in this world as we follow you. And by the way, God, we thank you that when all is said and done, that eternity is secure with you for those of us who have a relationship with Christ. So bless our decisions, we pray. And God, thank you for what you'll do through this time. In Jesus' name, amen.